Welcome to Restoring Memory, a COVID Calls exploration of the first two COVID years. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters, and since March 16, 2020, I've been the host of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. This is episode number 483, March 16, 2022, Poetry in Hard Times. I'd like to introduce my guests, and they are not strangers to those who've been keeping up with COVID calls. Travis Chi-Wing Lau is Assistant Professor of English at Kenyon College. His research and teaching focus on 18th and 19th century British literature and culture, health, humanities, and disability studies. His poetry has appeared in Word Gathering, Glass, South Carolina Review, Foglifter, and Hypertext, as well as in two chapbooks, The Bone Setter, which appeared in 2019, and Pairing, which appeared in 2020 with Finishing Line Press. Second guest is Nisha Patel. Nisha is an award-winning queer and disabled spoken word artist. She was the city of Edmonton's eighth poet laureate and is a Canadian individual slam champion. Her debut collection, Coconut, is available at Glass Bookshop, and you can find her work at Nisha Patel, N-I-S-H-A-P-A-T-E-L dot C-A, and you can find Travis's work at travislau.com, travisclau.com, T-R-A-V-I-S-C-L-A-U dot com. Travis Chewing Lau and Nisha Patel, welcome back to COVID Calls. Yeah, happy to be here. It's so lovely to be here in this conversation with y'all. And um, I have your books. I've been like so excited to talk to you. In the last couple of weeks, we've had several poets on. I had um, Zachary Loeb on earlier today, who's um, he's a poet masquerading as a, a brilliant STS graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania. We talked about his plague poems today. I had Kathy Ossip on two weeks ago. So it's been a great time to talk about poetry and COVID and just thrilled to have you here. Let me catch up with you a little bit first. Um, Nisha, um, we talked, went back and looked, we talked in um, August of 2021. How have you been? You know, uh, life has been really strange. I uh, started a master's degree and started studying, I think, more in depth uh, some of my lived experience, especially with disability. And it's been really fascinating to, to explore that. Um, I quit some of my jobs or I ended contracts and I decided to really fully focus on academia. And part of that was because like COVID became a time of contemplation. And so I was exploring new depths of myself and new depths of knowledge. And I really, you know, reignited this like hunger that I hadn't had since I had left university to study more in depth. What's the graduate program? Do you mind telling yeah. us? It's a Master's of Arts at Queen's University, and uh, I will actually be following up with an MFA at University of British Columbia this fall. I was hoping I could talk you into a PhD in uh, Science and Technology Policy <laughs> at KAIST. I'm not going to give up on that, but uh, I'm really glad that you landed somewhere that you feel comfortable. Yeah, thank you. That's great. Travis, let me bring you in. And we talked um, back in June of 2021. How have you been doing? It's been a kind of surreal time. Like I uh, I think I mentioned then that I started my job at Kenyon right in the thick of the pandemic, uh, fall of uh, 
2020 was when I started my job. So I did not set foot on a campus that was going to be my new home. So this is my first academic year in which I'm actually at a small liberalized college that is a residential experience. So I'm actually able to even for the first time meet with students I've worked with for a year already. Um, so that, that kind of belatedness has been pervading every aspect of my professional life and my personal life too. Like I, I feel still like I'm a visitor in Columbus. I, I feel like I'm visiting the city, staying here briefly, but this is supposed to be my new long-term home. So it's been a long process of sort of finding home, so to speak. How were those conversations? And I'm, I've, I've landed here at KAIST in the middle of the pandemic as well. And I don't think I've quite gotten it right yet, like how to approach people like, hey, we've had a, a lot of interaction so far, but it's good to see you in person. I, I don't even know the right way to express the sort of pent up um, like energy that I have to meet people that are your colleagues, when, especially when you've moved to a place that you've you know, like, chosen to be like you did. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think... There's no, there's no graceful way of doing it aside from just honoring the fact that we're all in some ways displaced um, and like holding space for that displacement um, has been really important to me. And, and sometimes just joking about the fact that, oh, I've communicated with you for now almost a year and a half and we're finally meeting for the first time. Um, I think only belatedly will we really begin to sort of think about the consequences of that? I think about how so many relationships have changed over the course of the pandemic. Um, like who my closest friends are have changed since the everything happened about now going on two years. So I think it's worth thinking about. So we are going to um, have some poetry and I'm really glad and thankful that each of you has agreed to read a couple of poems tonight. So what we're gonna do is, um, both Travis and Nisha are going to read a poem and then we're going to take some time to talk and then they're each going to read another one and we'll talk some more after that. So Nisha, I'd like to start with you if that's okay. And what I'll do is that Travis and I will sort of exit the screen and you'll have it and then we'll come back when you're done. Okay. Perfect. Yeah, no problem. So uh, I think like during the pandemic, I ended up writing a lot, but I was writing like in hybrid forms and exploring, especially like visuals and medical metaphors and stuff like that. And this was a poem that was written early in the pandemic when it felt like we were at the height of a visible disaster. Um, and later, the poem I will read is more about the now where we have invisibilized the disaster. And so I wanted to pick these two poems today to show kind of the contrast in experiences, but also the very deep similarities that occur for people who have been indoors, people who were limited in their mobility beforehand, people who don't necessarily have the freedom to return to a world that is ready to return without them. Things I do between naps, wait to fall asleep again, take a cigarette to the balcony, not mine, but I am a sucker for keeping the window open. There is a discount if your government buys all the body bags at once. The writer writes what she knows, a full pantry, lungs and unclipped toenails, grief, a cavity stuffed with apples and lemons. I hear New York has run out of graves and grave diggers. Bodies in rental trucks go stale. 
while immigrant mothers go back to jobs bagging groceries for private school children in Central Park. My dad still goes to work even when there are no engines screaming his name, no broken bumpers to be unteethed. My car battery dies and my boyfriend doesn't drive, so I don't have anyone to call. I found a way to heaven, but you're not going to like it. It involves a flame wrapped inside a brown body. It burns when the world sets it on fire. Thank you. Thank you for reading that. And I'm going to um, do the same thing with Travis. We're going to give you the screen for a minute. Just take your time, uh, Travis, and we'll be back with you in just a minute. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us for this conversation. Um, I've chosen two poems I wrote also quite early um, in the pandemic, the first being um, a list poem um, that I was trying to think about the, the sort of strange public health messaging uh, and the ways that it is often framed as a kind of set of steps that ensures your protection or averts disaster or risk. Uh, so I decided to play with this list format um, to see if I could make something out of it. Um, and I used to hate enumerated lists. I always felt like they felt tedious. Um, but in this case, it felt particularly right to redeploy or reappropriate a form that public health uses so often. Um, so uh, this poem is called Quarantine Procedures. One, pinch just above the calyx. Two, pull to expose the style. Three, watch the nectar pool at the stigma. Four, quaff this closest to ambrosia. Five, continue until it honeys into hardness. Six, bear that hardness as a consequence, but not a loss. Seven, honor that consequence as worthy after the petals fall. Eight, hold that worth against the cruel tread of the hours. Nine, be tender with the hours even as they spin in place. Ten, trust that we can be in place but still moving. Eleven, respect the many bodies that you move among but never know. Twelve, recognize how much you have in common with them. Thirteen, move carefully because contact is more than touch. Fourteen, relearn how to touch as an act of faith. Fifteen, practice faith until it becomes second nature. 16, realize your nature will overflow. 17, name that overflow abundance. 18, tend to that abundance until it is plenty. 19, satisfy yourself with that plenitude which will never be lacking. 20, note how much else is lacking and who lacks it. 21, share with them your nectar, your hardness. 22, let them savor it even if they do not find it sweet. 23, make space for their or your bitterness. 24, create more space because you are abundant. 25, refuse to take back that space even if it turns bitter. 26, forgive the bitterness because it is not permanent. 27, taste it again to discover you have at least seven tastes. 28, name this new one that is unique to your encounter. 29, commit this encounter to memory. 30, Relinquish control over it, for your body remembers. 31. Remember that the body may remember what you may not. 32. Reward your body for this unspoken work. 33. Acknowledge that bodies continue working, sometimes on your behalf. 34. Give thanks that your body continues to work. 
35, implore your body to rest. 36, allow your body to resist you. 37, admit that you sometimes resist your body. 38, concede to a dreamful sleep. 39, dream of that nectar again. 40, dream of that nectar we may all share again. I'm going to just do this because I, I feel like I need to. Um, thank you both. I actually want to give Disha the first, first say here if you wanted to ask anything or say anything. Yeah, I think that the act of writing a poem and the act of sharing a poem serve two similar but different functions in the process of grieving. And part of the sharing has allowed me to extend care towards myself, but also to the world around me. And I say that like it, that it kind of flies in the in the face of a world that doesn't always care for me as a disabled person, um, but also a person who has not had COVID yet, um, but is scared of having COVID and has seen people I love get COVID and has seen people pass away during the pandemic, whether from COVID or not. So yeah, I think that giving words to our grief is really important. And it's also a part of like, really what makes us human that we can, we can express grief um, in a way that connects us and lessens the load. Travis, let me open some space for you. I really, um, I really like Nisha's description of what poetry does as a kind of care work. Um, but this is something that is related to our previous conversation, Scott, where I was really dismayed by the kinds of cultural amnesia that have happened in relation to COVID. Um, and poetry has that, that potential to do the kind of memorializing work that we will do as a nation or as a world. Um, so I, I think that that work of testimony, I think, has been really important for me, especially as everyone seems to be rushing back to, quote unquote, return to normal. Um, it, things feel hardly normal. Uh, and sort of remembering the consequences of, of what we leave behind or what we've chosen to forget has been, the stakes have felt really high for me. And I think Nisha and I both share that. I, you know, one of the things I really appreciate is you both being willing to, to share these because um, I'm right there with you, Nisha, that the writing of the of poetry and then and the sharing of it, I mean, they're related, but the sharing um, is a revisitation, I think, for some writers, of for some of them, of the exact state that they were in or the place they were. I mean, it's a, it's a for me, um, you know, when I write, and I read it aloud, there's a transportation back. And sometimes it's, um, and it smells or it's shade of light. I mean, it's all kinds of things you realize, or you didn't realize that you were absorbing while you were writing, because I think it's a different kind of, of mode of existence in lots of ways. So, so I, I raised that because I wonder, um, you're a slam champion, you're used to performing these, but what about these, what about the COVID poems? I mean, mm -hmm. is are poets going to feel comfortable sharing these? Because it takes you back to kind of a, a hard place. Yeah, honestly, uh, 
slam poets and spoken word poets always take themselves to hard places. It's kind of part and parcel to to what we do uh, for better or for worse. And we're learning from that. And I think it's interesting because one of the poems I, I continue to write uh, is a living poem. It, it is a poem that for every word, as you know, Scott, um, a poem that for every word, uh, there is a representation of the deaths um, in Alberta, my home province. And so right now that's like an incalculably long poem. It's like 3000 plus words. And it takes, you know, like half an hour to read out loud. Um, and I think that for me, like, those are all hard moments. Every word is a hard moment. And spoken word is a hard moment, but at least it's a moment that I share in company of other spoken word poets. Um, and that company and that community is what I think distinguishes poets who write sometimes alone in the woods or in a bedroom and the poets who are able to have the privilege of speaking in community and spoken word because spoken word poets, um, they don't keep poems inside themselves. They share them with the world. And that is both a gift and a burden and a responsibility to extend to the world around us. Travis, have you been reading, uh, you know, performing your poems very much during this time? Are you, you know, again, the sort of same question I had for Nisha, where does it take you when you read it aloud? This is such an interesting conversation, precisely because I was not um, sort of brought up in the tradition of spoken word and slam poetry. A lot of my work, um, in some ways, uh, was never meant to be read out loud. And it's been an unusual privilege um, and a gift to be able to have opportunities like these to share my work. Uh, but they're very much written in seclusion, um, part of a lyric tradition of confession and, and private thinking. But something I've been thinking a lot about as a disabled scholar, as somebody trying to think about um, access and inclusion, what does it mean to be disabled in public? And that's something that I think I'm learning a lot from folks like Nisha who are actively doing this as part of their craft. Um, I used to be terrified of the fact that once I share a poem about my, my pain or my disability, that I am on display in a way that might subject my body and body mind to scrutiny. Um, and it's become empowering in really interesting ways. Uh, but this is new to me, uh, especially as so much of my experiences as a reader have happened in the midst of the pandemic in virtual form, rather than being in proximity to other bodies uh, and minds that I may share space with in more intimate ways. But that doesn't diminish this. It's just a very different form that I'm getting used to now. Let me take a second to remind everyone that you're listening to COVID Calls and we're talking today about poetry and hard times with Nisha Patel and Travis Chiwing Lau. And um, I wanted to um, uh, just ask a little bit about about each piece, uh, Nisha. I mean, there's so much visual in the piece that you read and so many um, so many images there that people can really can really connect with. Um, which I, I'm sort of curious, like in a, in a world of images of COVID, I guess I'm asking you to give up your craft here, so you don't have to answer this, but I, you know, there's with an unlimited number of images to choose from too many, you've curated some, which really hit hard for me. Can you say just a little bit about your process of winnowing down into just the right images to bring in front of us? 
Yeah, I think um, there's like the easy answer, which is that I can only write really from the worldview or the perspective that I experience the world in. And so the things around me that spark emotion, um, but more philosophically, I think that we as people, as disabled people who have varied identities that go beyond the individual self, right? We have an identity for me as um, as a disabled person, I have an identity that includes my devices. So my insulin pen, for instance, is part of my identity. My pill holder is part of my identity. And when we extend those identities around us, I think the world becomes a part of us. And so choosing images is not so much like a, a buffet where I pick something and I put it into a poem. Um, instead, it's how can I express myself um, and that aspect of what I'm experiencing best? How can I put my identity on display um, and be representational in that way? And I think all of that is is important, um, but there's also images that, that make me weep, that make me cry. Um, and I think maybe those are emotions that I trust my instinct on, that those are worth preserving, even if it's just in this moment. Yeah, thank you for that. And I think the ones that, um, you know, about body bags and, 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 I mean, those are visceral, but actually the one that really gets me is the going into the balcony for the smoke. Because that just, that captures, just as, as a listener, this may not be your experience, but my experience of hearing it is, I'm just picturing millions of people at home who are afraid to even go outside and that they're inside and the toll that that's taking on people, which we will have never calculated and will never calculate. I don't think there's any, any way to get at that. Travis, um, I wanted to also just, I love the list. I mean, I just had, to, I, I actually really like that form. You sort of said at the top that it's, it's, it's not your favorite, but um, I guess I, you know, coming from the education I came from and, and, a, and a teacher who put Walt Whitman in my hand and said, read this. And the first time I was like, long lists of stuff. Like, what's that? And then I kind of got it and really loved it. And um, and I've enjoyed poets who do that that form. But I, I really like that it takes a turn and starts talking about, I mean, you're talking about the body throughout, but you take a turn and talk about the body more explicitly and there's this moment in there where you talk about giving thanks that your body continues i love that i have felt that so many times in these last in these last two years can you say a little bit of, about that part of the poem yeah um so like i said i, I wrote this very early on uh, i was still living in austin texas at the time and i just remember feeling this bizarre sense of stasis um, and stagnancy uh, because every day started to blur into one another. And that's been something that many, many people have described as the, the lived experience of the pandemic. I think for me, uh, it was a really powerful reminder of how the temporality of the pandemic was different than the temporality of my body. My body changes all the time. My sense of pain changes every hour, every minute. Um, so I was trying to reconcile the two of those two forms of temporality. Um, and I've always been struck by the, on the one hand, really beneficial language of mindfulness, but on the other hand, this kind of capitalistic notion of we all need to be 
uh, doing something to care for our mental health in the sense that it is like a marketed thing. I'm thinking about how, you know, immediately in the midst of the pandemic, we're getting these automated emails uh, from institutions that say, oh, this is our special health seminar that's going to help you solve all of your pandemic problems. Um, and just how it becomes marketed as a, as a kind of solution for what are much larger problems. So I, I was thinking about what would it mean to attend to my body and its rhythms uh, and have it disrupt the flow of what is supposed to be ostensibly a set of quarantine procedures. What happens if I'm following the procedures of my body rather than the procedures uh, prescribed to me that are supposed to be a one-size-fits-all model? Um, so that's where you're hearing a little bit of that that turn, where I'm I stop following the directions that have been assigned to me, and start following my body's directions that sometimes I'm in an ambivalent relationship with. So I, if it's okay with you both, I think we'd like to hear another another poem, and then we can chat a little bit more. Uh, Travis, would you mind leading us this time? Sure, absolutely. So this second poem I've chosen um, is, I think, more reflective of the work that I typically do. Um, this is a shorter poem, a lyric poem. Um, I'm thinking here a lot about chronic pain. Um, and as I, as I wrote this early on in the pandemic, I didn't realize that my pain would intensify in new ways, given how sedentary my life can be. Um, being inside and not having the even the sort of base mobility that I am used to having, I didn't realize my pain would quite get as bad as it did. Uh, and this poem is an attempt to think about that. Uh, and this poem is entitled Saran Wrap. My body radiates pain, is dense with it. Carmen Maria Machado. I take pain by the scruff and wrap it whole in saran so that it will sweat when it meets the cold of me, and sorcelled by the cheapness of cling and the irritant spark of life, wet with itself, wet with embarrassment, because this is the feeling of a body full with leftovers. Dense with too much of itself that it cannot find any room left in the shelves for preservation until the whole no longer manages to keep fresh. So it stales along with the flesh as it is forgotten while moldering in plain sight. But even in decay, it holds its ground. Leeches beyond its containment. Grows beyond its means. Greedy tensile thing. Yeah, so as I mentioned, um, this is kind of uh, a part two in many ways to a part one poem. And I, I think that right now I'm really in moments of, of feeling a need to articulate the confusion of, of the world as it is. The magpies. There's a moment when I wake up and the world is still. 
The birds have paused their song. The snow falls more gently and the rabbit in the parking lot is taking stock. Nothing hurts. Nothing speaks. Not even the scream inside my throat for once. I hear a bell ring. Not the one at recess, but more like customer service. I have no complaints, but my body does. Time starts first in the crushed nerves of my hands, my lungs, breathe halfway and give up and blood burns off another unit of insulin in the time it takes to remember that silence is an absence and not a loss. Grief has a sound and it is awfully similar to my grandmother fracturing her bones or the noise my skin makes when my four millimeter needles break it. Last week, the nurse told me I had thick skin as he drew blood for a second time from the sides of my wrists. Anniversaries are hard because this year we will honor my uncle in prayer. And last year, we cried for the world, but at home, we only mourned losing our jobs. A truck honks as it drives by. There's no silence in its sound as it screams in my face at the grocery store and the parking lot of my home where the rabbit is long gone. I am almost convinced I hate this body for being compromised instead of the world for compromising it. A friend buys plane tickets to Cancun, to Mexico, to wine country, and I do not blame them. I stock up on rapid tests and N95 masks, and instant noodles. The boy in class lets his nose show. When I wake up, I forget for a moment who I am and what I've lost. I forget the governments who have failed me and the way my mother cried on my birthday. But then I always remember, like the birds remember they must sing to herald the dawn, for what a dawn it is to remain alive. Like the rabbit remembers to change fur. I prepare for winter, even as the world welcomes back the sun. I remember like the magpie remembers. That for a second we were united against the broken ground. And for a second, once more, I forget that the world is ready to leave me behind. Thank you. Thank you both. Let me remind folks that you are listening to COVID Calls and I'm talking to poets today, Travis Chiwing Lau and Nisha Patel, who've been kind enough to come on and share poetry and read it uh, with us live. What a privilege. Um, and I, there, I have another question I wanted to, to ask you both and it's about language in this time. Every disaster introduces like a new lexicon um, you know, after um, September 11, people talked about, um, you know, they, they talked about uh, building collapses. They talked about you know, skins of airplanes. Um, these, these, these are words that are out there and available for anybody, but their experts usually use them. Engineers would use them um, to talk about those kinds of things. Katrina, same thing, people are talking about levees, they're talking about floods. And, and so I'm, as a disaster historian, I'm always attentive to the language of disaster. 
but I find um, I'm really fascinated when when words that sometimes are highly specific or technical, really descriptive, very esoteric, and then they they migrate into public consciousness. And I'm curious about that in your in your own work because I hear some of that in in your work. Um, terminology it might not have to be COVID specific, and maybe it's more relevant. You've both shared, you know, what it's what it's like to also talk about openly about disability. So maybe it's more connected with with sort of lexicon of disability. But I wanted to I wanted to engage that a little bit because having those words in circulation are really it's really important i think and it doesn't always happen through a like a public health pronouncement or a presidential mm -hmm. speech i think it enters the world world through art we don't realize we're using those words so i don't know if that resonates with you travis i wanted to let me ask you that first just like are you absorbing the language of covid and finding it coming out or, or how are you how are you absorbing new words at this time this is such an interesting question and is like kind of a moment of revelation that I, in fact, had absorbed something lexically that I didn't really intend to. So the poem I just read, Saran Wrap, was an attempt to think about how quotidian objects become imbued with certain kinds of valences. In this case, I'm thinking about um, the relationship here between the Saran Wrap and the skin, uh, exterior and interior. And I think one of the prominent images that has now become sort of the center of COVID has been masking. And I'm thinking about how masks obscure, but also masks create barriers. And that's often part of the politicized discourse surrounding masks where people feel like they're being restrained or um, uh, uh, now a very interestingly politicized term muzzled by the mask. Um, and in some ways, Saran Wrap, I had not thought about it until now, has been an attempt to think about the confines of sort of everyday things. Uh, where that that those leftovers that you sort of put away and saran wrapped has this kind of unsettling and threatening quality to it, um, just like that the image of the mask, which is meant to be protective and in some ways is supposed to be um, that thing, that gesture of care that we provide ourselves and one another, but also how it on the other side has this sense of restriction and deprivation, and even in our our disability circles. Um, a lack of access in the sense that it actually impedes certain forms of communication and intimacy. So I think about the mask as a really ambivalent thing. And I, I do something similar here with saran wrap, weirdly enough, which is something I had not thought about seriously until I started looking at a plate of food that was sitting on my table. That's a, I mean, it's so interesting that it's all of a sudden you're sort of making kin with this inanimate saran wrap the way that we are with the with the mask and i think people have talked about that this sort of ambivalent feeling towards this piece of of really high-tech piece of fabric a textile that now is something that everyone well everyone should um, be carrying and using um you don't want to but then we can't help ourselves we, we become co connected to it somehow it become we're carrying it around we're wearing it on our face of course we're going to get connected to it um nisha thank you for that travis it's really interesting nisha same question to you about language and, and you know, you talked about insulin um, some. So you're giving us, you're, you're preparing us for certain things that we might not um, know about you and know about the poet, but also just need to know about the world by talking openly using this kind of terminology. Yeah, I think that um, like every time we enter 
a period where people are marginalized, which happens to be every period. There is a language that is adopted by oppressors, but also a language that fights back from the oppressed. And I think COVID becomes this battleground because we are in like a hyper visible state where people are public all the time. And so we see these battles happening live. We see them happening on Twitter and in the news media and all of those biases about where these people come from and what they believe in come out in the language that they use, right? So the language of COVID is shaped by capitalism. It's shaped by carcerality. It's shaped by, you know, my experience as a fluent English speaker, but it's also shaped by my mom's experience of a bilingual and trilingual speaker. Um, And there's different words for it. And what reaches kind of publicly accessible consciousness is not necessarily the language of disaster everywhere. You know, my dad's language of disaster is, um, I'm going to go to work today, and I hope enough people come to keep my business alive. Um, And that is also a language of disaster. And so I think what ends up happening to us is that we grasp for things we can comprehend. um, And that is how we contribute to making sense of the world. And hopefully other people also comprehend that. And the people who are moving the discourse in ways that we might be uncomfortable with, those are the people who sometimes we like we don't even appreciate them in their own times, right? We're reading bell hooks and we're reading more Audre Lorde than ever before. Um, many of them black thinkers, especially in the academic right. world, um, or we're marginalizing artists. Um, and I don't know what's going to happen to everyone in the future. I won't be here for it. But perhaps something of us will remain in the art we created now. And that, too, will inform the next disaster. We're almost out of time. I wanted to um, ask you about, you know, things you're wrestling with now, work that you might be creating right now. Anisha, you you said you're still adding to the the ongoing poem. And that's how I first found you. I read this news article mm-hmm. about a poet in Canada who's creating a poem that grows every time someone dies. And I, I sort of stopped what I was doing. I was like, find this person, must mm-hmm. talk to this person. Yeah, um, I'm working on a lot of things. And some of most of it is sad, uh, in some ways, but also, like, for me is hopeful. Uh, I am working on what I call a, a medical memoir in which I go through the history of every kind of marked or, you know, written down interaction I've had with the medical system and my own body. Uh, so like, as I became more disabled during the pandemic, um, even though I, I don't even know if I believe in the word disabled anymore. Um, and then I've supplemented it with like a, a knowledge from academia. And I'm trying to really straddle this line of like, how do we take the ivory tower language, which can be like incredible and empowering and circulate that in a world that needs to hear it, but in a more humane way, in a more um, animalistic way in many ways, right? Like art, I think, taps into something that is more profound than the labels we give each other. And so I'm trying to take these things and create art that reflects that. And I have delved into new ways of doing that. I've delved into music and visual art and like sculpture, um, and that's all like that keeps keeps me going right now. It's the creation of art in the face of tremendous loss.
Yeah. Travis, um, anything you wanted to add to that? Thank you for that, Nisha. Uh, there's a lot of academics I know out there who need to who need to listen to what you just said and find that find that courage. I'm glad you see power in academic language. I think a lot of times we don't recognize the the power of that mm -hmm. and what we could do with it. Um, Travis, what are you working on right now? I think for me, I've been in this kind of um, creative role where I haven't really been producing poetry in, in the ways that I used to. And I, I, I had a, for a while a great shame about this, where I felt that in, in this pandemic moment, despite all the capitalistic pressures to be productive and to be um, using my time effectively, I, I actually started to embrace this lack of productivity, so to speak. Um, I, I had great aspirations to work on a, a full-length collection of poems um, called The Way of All Flesh, which is sort of thinking about embodiment as I always do. Um, but I, I've i lately uh, started to accept the fact that maybe it's not fully the right time for me to engage with what inevitably that collection is going to demand, which is some difficult and, and traumatic re-encounters with my experiences with medicine, where I think I have a, a lot in, in common here with Nisha regarding sort of the confrontation of being a marginalized person navigating medicine. Um, I also think that the, the, the temporality of the pandemic being so unrelenting, I haven't really given myself time and space um, to do that creative work. And I'm, I'm allowing myself to be more patient that in, in maybe different conditions or as things quote unquote improve, um, I may actually have more space, time and energy to do this poetic work. Um, so I've actually been really uh, invested in the work of others right now. So a lot of reading um, and a lot of slow reading, which I often don't do as an academic. Mm -hmm. uh, I do a lot of fast reading. Um, yeah. So that slowness is actually really a gift. I appreciate that so much. And it takes me back to um, the, almost the start of my day um, with COVID calls, I had singer songwriter John Gorka on as a guest. And um, one of the things he said was, um, it's okay to be feeling bad in bad times. I mean, I think you both kind of been speaking to this, like these intense pressures to just continue being productive. Even the way I asked that question, like give us more product, you know, like I didn't mean it that way, but you know, that um, it's also okay just to, to not be all right, to not be productive in this time, because because you probably still are. You're still thinking, as you said, you're still reading. Um, well, I, I, I mean, in a greedy way, I look forward to when you're writing more and sharing more, but I'm glad you're taking that time. And um, I want to just thank you both for this, you know, really great uh, time and, and hearing the poetry and hearing, you know, how you're doing and your ambitions for it. And it means a lot. And um, I just want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls. And this is part of the restoring memory group of COVID calls as we're moving towards the 500th episode and the launch of the digital archive, which takes place here in the next day. And um, please stick around in two hours. We're going to have um, we're going to have Jacob Steer Williams, who's going to actually take over for three hours uh, while I get some rest here in East Asia. And he's going to lead three COVID calls. Um, and we're going to be talking about war in the pandemic as well as cancer in the pandemic. So you do want to catch those. And let me thank my guests again, Nisha Patel and Travis Chi Wing Lao for this time. 
great stuff and really appreciate your generosity today. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks for holding space. I really appreciate it. Stay healthy, everybody. And we'll see you next time on COVID Calls.